Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all those who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to, to destroy, but to fulfil. For I assure you, uh, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says you moron will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge for, uh, to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. I assure you, you will never get out of here until you have paid the last penny. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you. Thanks be to God. Well, hello everyone. I've secretly been looking forward uh, to coming to 8am as I've heard so many good things about you. So I'm really pleased to be with you here this morning. The Roman philosopher Seneca said, if one does not know to which port one is sailing, no wind is favorable. You may have noticed that I have a British accent. I came to Australia four years ago from the UK on a two-year secondment with my previous employer, one of the big four professional services firms. When I got to Australia, I was given one of many purposes. That purpose, or what that one, was to reduce costs on my audits by 3%. It was great to have a purpose. It was great to have something to aim for. The problem was I had no idea how to achieve that purpose. In fact, in my first year, costs actually went up on my largest engagement because of a lack of strategy. It was only in my second year that I worked out a strategy with my boss where costs were able to come down. 
But even then, I still hadn't met my purpose. You see, I had to reduce costs by 3%, and costs had only come down by 2%. So it was only in my third year, when I revised my strategy further, that I was able to meet my purpose. Now, this term, we are looking at the authentic life. And last week, we saw how our hearts had to match God's heart. But here today, I want to tell you that the authentic life is living out God's purpose for our lives, doing good works that glorify God's name by being salt and light of the earth. You see, God has given us a purpose. He wants us to do good works to glorify his name. And he has given us a strategy, his law. He's also given us a benchmark of what good looks like. That is his moral perfection. And if we were to perfectly live out his moral law, his strategy, we would achieve our purpose of living the authentic life, giving glory to God by our good works. So let's start at the beginning and look at purpose. Turn with me to verse 16 in your Bibles. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Great, we have our purpose, to do good works. Problem is, what are they? Well, have a look at verses 13 and 14. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, if you're anything like me, when I first read this, you may be thinking, great, that's as clear as mud. So let me explain. Salt in the ancient world was a preservative. It was the refrigerator of its day. See, a little salt covering a piece of food dries the food out so that harmful bacteria and mold cannot grow on it. Here, Jesus is calling us to be a preservative on the earth. He is calling us to preserve his moral law, to be a moral antibiotic. But why? Well, God's moral law is good. If we lived out God's moral law according to his will, it would lead to good outcomes. If we break God's moral law, it leads to negative consequences. Now, even a few disciples working within the much larger society can preserve God's moral law. Take William Wilberforce, a British Christian in the late 1700s and early 1800s. See, William Wilberforce had a vision to have a more Christian British Empire and to improve the morality within the British Empire. But he'd seen the moral decay brought in the British Empire, particularly around the slave trade. The slave trade, which at the time in the British Empire was 80% of its foreign income. Now, I'm sure you'd agree that 80% of your income is something that you wouldn't readily give up. But William Wilberforce had seen this moral decay. He had seen how the slaves were treated cruelly by their masters. He had seen the... Um, the difficulty that slaves had with their identity as they were bought and sold as property. He had seen the dangerous travels that the slaves had undertaken from Africa to the Americas and the dangers that that voyage uh, had for the slaves. So, wanting to promote Christianity and to seek moral improvement within the British Empire, William Wilberforce successfully lobbied the British Parliament to ban the slave trade, to ban this foreign income, which was 80% of all foreign income. 
he was being salt of the earth. Last week, we read, those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. Those who are gentle are blessed, for they will inherit the earth. And those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be filled. This is being salt and light. See, it is hearts that see the brokenness of the world around us. It is hearts that know that God's ways are better than our ways. It is hearts that seek righteousness. So that means we should be standing up in the public square, giving a Christian position on the topic of the day. This could be the evils of domestic violence. It could be the evils of modern slavery. In light of the North Korean situation, it could be even giving the Christian position on just war theory. If we don't do this, who will? As Jesus says, if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty again? As salt, we can influence one person, might be our neighbor. That may transform a neighborhood, maybe a city, maybe a country, maybe even the world. Let's turn to our other work in verse 14. We are to be the light of the world. In John chapter 8, Jesus describes himself as the light of the world. He is the light leading the world out of darkness. He is the one who died to forgive us of our sins and rose again to give us eternal life if we trust in him. And he wants us to partner with him in his mission. He wants us to live such good lives that people see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. Think of the sun and the moon. The sun is the source of all light that shines onto the darkness on the earth. The moon reflects the sun's light and shines in the darkness, but the light comes from the sun. Jesus is the sun. He is the source of all light. We are the moon. We are to reflect Jesus' light by living good lives so people will glorify God. So we should be pointing people to Jesus. Note, that doesn't mean we should withdraw from society. We shouldn't be living some monastic lifestyle. No, we should be in society living such good lives that people will glorify God. Great, we have a purpose. We are to do good works to give glory to God by being salt and light. But just as I found in my professional services experience, we cannot live out that purpose without having a strategy. Thankfully, Jesus has given us a strategy, his law. Turn with me to verse 19. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Did you catch the three key words there? Teaches, uh, practices, and commands. To teach is to advocate, to promote God's law. To practice is to live out God's law, to be light of the world. But what are commands? Well, God's commands are his law. Look at uh, verse 20, where Jesus tells us first how the law shouldn't be used. He tells us, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus is giving us an example of how the law shouldn't be used because it won't achieve its purpose. He is saying we should not live out the law as the key to salvation because Jesus is the key to salvation. 
Look at verse 17. I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. See, the level of righteousness needed for salvation is perfection. The law must be fulfilled completely in order to grant salvation. And the only person who can do that is Jesus. That is his purpose. Our purpose is to point people to Jesus so that they will be saved. This means that we should not be using the law as a means of salvation. Now, if there is anyone here today who does not know the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior and wishes to accept Jesus' invitation to be reconciled with God and have eternal life after they die, I would love to talk to you after the service. Jesus gives us a second way the law should, be, uh, should not be used, and that is it should not be ignored. Look at verse 18. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. There is a temptation now that we are saved to just ignore the law, to live life as we want to. But Jesus is saying, if we do that, we won't fulfill our purpose. So how should the law be used? It should be used in light of the purpose Jesus has given us. It is the tool which we should be advocating for in society. We should be promoting God's law because it leads to good outcomes. It is also the benchmark, the blueprint for how we should be living our lives so that people will see our lives and give glory to God. That's good. We have a purpose and a strategy. But what does good look like? Well, good, God's benchmark, is his moral perfection. Jesus is about to give us six examples, six different laws, which reveal his moral character. You see, in my professional services example, good was a reduction in costs of 3%. Look at Jesus' benchmark here, again in verse 19. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. God's standard is perfection. If you break one of the least of these commands, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. All the law must be kept. But in order to keep it, we must know God's purpose behind it. We must know the lawgiver's intention. Look at verse 21 with this example. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. See, God in this example is showing us he doesn't just care about our outward perfection. He cares about our inward perfection as well as our outward perfection, our inward and outward obedience to the law. That is, our obedience to the law perfectly. The law was given to us by God and reflects his perfect moral nature. And if used correctly, it will bring glory to God. See, in this example, Jesus is refocusing us away from the fruit of murder to the root of murder. Murder is the final action in a series of actions that starts with us being angry with our brother in our hearts. Therefore, we must learn to control our anger. Now, to answer the counter-objection, I'm so sure some of you are thinking, but Jesus got angry, didn't he? I mean, after all, he overturned the money 
changes tables, as we read in John chapter 2. He got angry with those who desecrated the Sabbath, as we read in Mark chapter 3. Here, Jesus is displaying righteous anger. He is demonstrating the anger we need to be showing if we're going to be salt of the world. It is that anger that comes about from seeing the brokenness in the world. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But this isn't the anger Jesus is talking about here. He is talking about that anger which comes in our hearts when someone does something to us. Martin Luther said, the fundamental problem in law-breaking is idolatry. And by idolatry, he meant breaking the first commandment. Do not have any other gods before me. You see, if we break commandments 2 to 10, we automatically break commandment 1. Take stealing. If I steal something, I'm saying, I desire that thing more than God. That has become my idol. If I murder someone, I'm saying, I don't believe God is a good judge. I will be that judge. So I make myself that idol. Jesus is showing us that sin starts in our hearts. And if our mission statement is to be salt and light, we need to keep God as God so he is glorified and remove idols. Let's imagine two husbands. For argument's sake, let's call them James and Andy. And they have two wives, Charlie and Miriam, which is funny because James and Andy both have wives called Charlie and Miriam. Now, it's Valentine's Day, and James and Andy go back to their wives with flowers. And the wives go, oh, those flowers, they're gorgeous. I'm so pleased you did this for me. Why did you do it? Well, James, being a bit of a cheapskate and having just bought the flowers from the local servo and they're still smelling strongly of petrol, says, well, it's just what you have to do on Valentine's Day, isn't it? Everyone else was doing it. It was my duty to do it. Andy, being the romantic guy he is, goes to Miriam and says, oh, darling, I adore you. I love you. These flowers are a reflection of my love for you. That's the same action, isn't it? In both cases, the wives have received flowers, but I bet Miriam reacts a lot better than Charlie does. In fact, I don't think James wants to be in the house that day. You see, inward obedience does matter. There is a difference between duty and delight. So focusing on on this example of murder, the key to stopping the root of murder becoming the fruit of murder, is to nip it in the bud. It is to forgive our brother. Do you know there's a murderer in the room today? In fact, I reckon there are several murderers in the room today. Let's face it, we all have that person in our lives who we are angry with. But do you notice that Jesus says not only are those who murder judged, but those who are angry are judged. You see, By forgiving our brother, we stop the process going to murder. We prevent moral decay. Thus, we are being salt of the earth. Not only that, but forgiveness does not come to us naturally. We forgive others because Christ forgave us first. Therefore, by forgiving our brother, we are pointing them to Christ. We're being light of the world. 
But notice, Jesus isn't just concerned about the anger in our own hearts. He's concerned about the anger in our brother's hearts because of our sin. In verses 23 and 24, Jesus wants us to be reconciled with our brother who has something against us. In fact, he's so strong on this, he prioritizes it above us worshiping God. Why? Well, if we have seen that anger is the root of murder, then nipping that anger in the bud prevents moral decay. Thus, we are being salt by reconciling ourselves with our brother. Furthermore, if our brother is angry at us, then they will be blind to our good works. They will be so consumed with their anger, they will not see our good works and glorify God. So thus we are failing as salt and light. Now, reconciling yourself with someone who is angry with you is not an easy task, and there isn't a silver bullet. In fact, the problem can sometimes seem so great that there is no solution to it. Now, in my professional services days, when we encounter such a problem, we often try to break the problem down into smaller chunks by creating SMART goals, that is, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and timely goals. Now, that might sound a bit corporate, but it does help break a problem down into smaller chunks. It may make it a bit easier to reconcile ourselves with our brother who is angry with us. So if there is someone in your lives who you know is angry with you today, can I ask you to go home and pray about it? God will maybe give you a solution to the problem. Maybe create a SMART goal, and it may help us be reconciled with our brother. Wouldn't the world be a better place if we all did that? After all, Jesus did say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. So let me paint you a vision. Imagine a world where we as Christians lived out God's word as he intended, inwardly, outwardly, perfectly, where people saw our actions and said, those are good actions, praise their God, he must be a good God. Imagine a world where we knew God's word and why it was good, that we were fiercely promoting God's word in the public square. Isn't that a world you desire to live in? It's a world I desire to live in, but how do we get there? Well, McCrindle Research recently published a report asking non-Christians what they would find attractive about the Christian faith. The number one response? Seeing Christians authentically live out their faith. See, Jesus says it and the research backs it up. Would you expect anything less? So, how do we get there? We live out our purposes as disciples. We be salt and light in the earth. We know God's word, and we get down on our knees, asking God to transform our hearts into the likeness of his. We use the law as God intended, inwardly, outwardly, perfectly. We live the authentic life by giving glory to God through our good works of being salt and light. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word here today. We thank you for showing us that you have given us a purpose, that you have given us a strategy, and you have given us a benchmark. Lord, please transform our hearts to be more like yours so we can achieve this purpose. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.